thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Today, my fellow podcast listeners, we finally come to the close of the series on restoring the ruins. Uh, you know, last week I said I, I thought and hoped we would if I didn't go on too long, but I did. And so this week we really are going to close unless the church is raptured before I finish. So let me just rehearse briefly what we covered last week and then close out this concept of covenant. You'll recall in the last episode, we demonstrated how the Supreme Court itself thinks of the Constitution as a covenant. We looked at the fact that William Blackstone, the great commentator on the common law and the English law, uh, noted that deeds in real estate transaction contain covenants. We looked at Herman Bovink's statement that all higher life forms with rational and moral beings depend for their higher essence on covenants. And he mentioned how you know marriage is a covenant and we have covenantal relationships and our business dealings and, and in art and in all these areas of life, not covenants in the same sense as that which is between God and his people, but the concept of covenant is woven throughout our everyday life. And then we looked at the fact that the whole foundation for the story of the Bible, from its cosmology to its soteriology to its eschatology, rests in a covenant called the everlasting covenant or the eternal covenant, sometimes the covenant of peace, depending on the author you're reading or uh, the period in the Reformation in which you may be reading. And today, I want to finish up this discussion about the nature of covenants because, as A.W. Pink said in his book, which you can find online, The Divine Covenants, the concept of covenants are not well understood. And today, we have broken the sense of the continuation of history as one long event interrupted by a turning point in Jesus Christ into, in the Schofield Bible, eight different covenants, eight different time periods, uh, sort of disconnected from each other, no longer having the cohesive succession that even the United States Supreme Court says must exist in a covenant. And so today, we want to finalize this understanding of covenants because I didn't get it, and I suspect many of you haven't gotten it either. For those who have, maybe we'll add some clarity, maybe we'll reinforce what you you already know, but in this, in what we're getting ready to cover, I believe you are going to end with a sense of excitement and hope and encouragement for the future that doesn't usually manifest itself in the church today, particularly when it comes to politics, which is predominantly stopping bad things and hoping we can slow the crazy train from going completely off the rails faster than it's already going. So with that, let me start. Now, one of the things that I mentioned last week too is that there is the eternal covenant and these 
covenants with uh, Noah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David are explications of the showing forth of this eternal covenant. And oftentimes we think of them all individually. We're not sure of their connection to each other, how they connect, how they're disconnected, the, the continuity and yet discontinuity in between them all. And today we often think of there being two covenants, one with God's chosen people Israel and one with the church. But that was not the covenantal theology that brought about the Western legal tradition, particularly as it developed through the Protestant Reformation. Now, in terms of these covenants, George Sales Bishop, a theologian, pastor who lived between 1836 and 1914, pointed out something with respect to the eternal covenant that was brand new to me uh, in thinking about the covenant and particularly the two covenants, because I always thought of the covenant with Israel, the covenant with the church, right? But uh, George Bishop, in his book, Grace and Galatians, speaks of these other covenants as subordinate covenants or systems, and then says this, it is clear there can be but two and only two covenants possible between God and men a covenant founded upon what man shall do for salvation, and a covenant founded upon what God shall do for him to save him. In other words, a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Now, I'm going to confess, friends, I kind of thought, to the extent I thought anything about covenants, that the Mosaic covenant was the covenant of works. You know, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, offer your sacrifices this way, and, you know, if you kept all that law, then, you know, you could be saved. And, and that's what the Pharisees thought, right? And, of course, the point would be you, you're, you're not going to keep it all. You know, uh, as Jesus pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've looked at another woman with lust in your heart, from God's perspective, you've committed adultery to your wife. Okay? What, what guy hasn't done that from time to time, right? And, and so... That's how I understood this covenant of works. But he's really referring to the fact that that covenant was made with Adam and that Adam, if he had obeyed God and matured in his development of his relationship with God, would have inherited eternal life. He would have moved from this probationary state to the state of glorification. So Pink, A.W. Pink, whose work I referenced last week, says this, there have been but two men in the world and two facts in history. <laughs> but that would make absolutely no sense unless you understand this concept of two covenants, one with Adam and one with with Jesus. And that's what he says. These two men and these two facts are as follows. The two men are Adam and Christ. The two facts are the disobedience of the former, by which many were made sinners, and the obedience of the latter, by which many were made righteous. By the former came ruin, by the latter came redemption. That's what he's talking about. So, this is known in theology 
as federal headship. And that's a concept that's largely ignored today in most Protestant churches. And really, I hate to say, even in many Presbyterian circles. Now, I want to stop here and comment when you're saying, wait a minute, a covenant with Adam, it never uses the word covenant. The word covenant, you yourself, David says, showed up at the first time with Noah. Now, again, I want to go back to what I said earlier, that the concept of covenant would exist in the nature of things when we look at the parties of God and man, okay, even if the word covenant had never been used. That was the purpose of the quote last week from Bobbick. When you understand the nature of the covenants that we engage in, you would understand that God and man are engaged in a covenantal type of relationship, even from the beginning with Adam. Why? Because Adam was not owed anything. He could have no relationship with God because God is infinite, man's finite. There could be no connection and there could be no basis for blessing apart from God entering into a relationship with Adam. Adam could have done everything that God told him to do and he could have died and been consumed by the dust and no harm, no wrong, no injustice would have been done to him. Okay, So as time goes on, history goes on, as in the warp and woof of daily life, we see contracts and covenants being made. Remember when, when, when Abraham buys the, the plot to bury Sarah? The word covenant begins to make sense and to use it. It would have a context now for its understanding in the days of Noah. Okay, now, secondly, we need to appreciate this concept, this word of federal headship, is also not in the Scripture. But that shouldn't stop us from seeing in the Scripture the concept of what is federal headship any more than we should not use the word Trinity because, well, it doesn't appear in the Scripture, right? The word incarnation doesn't appear in the Scripture. So even as the Scripture testifies to this this thing that we've given the name incarnation, as Scripture testifies to this thing that we call the Trinity and the triune nature of God, so the Scripture testifies to this concept of federal headship being in Adam and in Jesus Christ. The two men of history and the facts surrounding their lives being the two critical facts of history. So Pink, with respect to this concept of federal headship, writes as follows. Adam was not only the common parent of mankind, but he was also their federal head and representative. In other words, the whole human race was placed on probation or trial in Eden. Adam acted not for himself alone, but he transacted for all who were to spring from him. Now think about this. When you sign contracts, you will see, the lawyers will always put somewhere in the end, to their successors and assigns. Because the contract continues. You, as the buyer of the house, represent the people who will live in the house, uh, particularly the relationship, covenantal relationship you would have with your, your spouse, the rights and duties that you 
and your spouse owe to your children. So, so you transfer the property to buyer X and his successors, heirs, and assigns. <laughs> so see, again, we find in the law what we find right here with Adam. And the concept of federal represents this notion of fiduciary, which is exactly what we have in our representative form of government, and particularly what was called our federal government, which is a representative Republican form of government. So we see, again, the truths of Scripture being worked out in connection with law as an organic development of that which is true about the nature of reality. That's the Western legal tradition. And when it kicks God out of the cosmos, there cannot be a Western legal tradition that partakes of, of that which was originally developed through the great revolutions or reformations from the 1100s to the late 1600s. So Pink continues, unless this basic fact be definitely apprehended, much that ought to be relatively clear to us will be shrouded in impenetrable mystery. And so if we then look at the second person here that Pink says is important, we can, we can deduce or see in Scripture that, that Christ is the other man, the second man, the other man, let's say, with whom God has entered into covenant. Take a look at Romans chapter 5. I believe it's verse 14, maybe verse 20, where it refers to Adam was a type of Christ. Christ was the ectype. He was the original, the archetype, of which Adam was the type. So we see right there that the scripture is drawing an analogy between Adam and Christ. We also see it in 1 Corinthians 15, where again, it refers to Jesus Christ as the second Adam and the last man. We won't ever need another man singular for the understanding of humanity. So Pink again writes, when Christ came to earth, he too stood in a federal relationship to his own people. And when he became obedient unto death, all for whom he was acting were accounted righteous. When he rose again from the dead, all whom he represented rose with him. When he ascended on high, they were regarded as ascending with him. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all, all of his people, be made alive according to the covenant with Christ, which is the everlasting covenant. So we see here that each of these two Adams, as it were, were, were acting on behalf of others. They each legally represented a definite people. So much so, says Pink, that all whom they represented were regarded by God as being in them. 
Adam represented the whole human race. Christ represented all those whom the Father had in his eternal counsels given to him, which is what we read about in John, that Jesus said, I'm going to take all those that the Father has given me, which in itself reflects some kind of agreement, right, between the Father and the Son, that, that I'm going to get what the Father has given to me, and the presumption would be upon a certain kind of condition, right? Okay, so we're, we're going to look at that in just a moment. So both of these relationships of representation must be understood in terms of the eternal covenant. And when we understand it, we'll have a hope of seeing substantial restoration, a repairing of the ruins prior to the return of Jesus. Because we who understand the everlasting covenant and its singular purpose will be able to see what is not seen, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, and we will be able to see that there is a city whose foundation and builder and architect is God, even as Abraham did. And that's not seen much today. Our vision doesn't go very far other than when can I escape and look how bad things are. So now let's look here for a moment as we close up today at this eternal covenant. This covenant is made between the persons of the Trinity in eternity. Remember, God dwells in eternity. Time is not relevant to him. God doesn't ever start doing something because starting doing something implies the temporal. God doesn't live in the temporal. He dwells outside of time, though he is imminent and active in his providence and in his judgments and in his law, in his creation. In him we live and move and have our being, Acts chapter 17. But this covenant within the Trinity, in eternal, is the foundation of every covenant found in the Bible. From that promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, to Noah, to Abraham, and so on and so forth. Now, where do we see this unnamed covenant referenced or this idea of there being some agreement existing in eternity? Well, in Revelation 13, 8, we read of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Now, this goes back to what we said about three or four weeks ago, that we look at time in an evolutionary way. But we have to understand that because God dwells in eternity, his decree is eternal and encompasses everything all at one time. We see it being rolled out over time. But to God, who dwells in eternity, there is no successive movement of his decree regarding creation, soteriology, and eschatology. So, Pink comments as follows on that verse in Revelation 13.8. This verse makes it clear that provision had been made by God for the recovery of his people who had apostatized in Adam. The provision had already been made. It wasn't that something happened and God says, well, I got a backup plan. All the details and results of the plan of mercy had been arranged and settled from the beginning 
by divine wisdom. That provision of grace, which God made for his people before the foundation of the world, embraced the appointment of his own son to become the mediator and of the work which in that capacity he should perform. Now Pink gives us a little more flesh on the bones of this covenant. The everlasting covenant, Pink says, is the mutual agreement into which the Father entered with his Son before the foundation of the world, respecting the salvation of his elect, Christ being appointed the mediator, he willingly consenting to be their head and representative. That there is a divine covenant to which Christ stands related, and that the great work which he performed here on earth was the discharge of his covenant office is evident in any number of scripture verses. Now, again, growing up in a church that focused predominantly on the New Testament, uh, we didn't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. And, um, you know, you might pull out a verse here or there. Uh, you know, at Christmas you pull out uh, Isaiah chapter 9, you know, his son, wonderful counselor, all that sort of stuff. But in Easter you'd pull out Isaiah 53. But in Isaiah 42, 6, we read of the Father saying to the Son, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand, which he agreed to do by the Holy Spirit, being poured out on him without measure that he might complete his task and will keep thee and give thee a person, Christ, for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. And that, that, my friends, just blows my mind. It makes the whole of Scripture so magnificently wonderful and hopeful because you see what he's saying here ties back to what we talked about with Isaiah 54 in the days of Noah and the prophecy of Noah post-flood that the Gentiles, the descendants of Japheth, would dwell in the tents of Shem from whom Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were descended. Now, from Christ's perspective, the terms of this covenant with the Father, Pink says, involved his assumption of human nature, the offering of himself as a sacrifice for sin, his exaltation in the nature he'd assumed to the right hand of God in the heavenlies. He was glorified. The person of Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It included his supremacy over his church and over all things for his church. That's in Ephesians chapter 1. The blessings which he would be empowered to dispense, which was to, to release the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of the work of the Holy Spirit in a more full and complete way beyond the ethical boundaries of Israel and beyond select prophets and persons to the young and the old who would all know him and the extent to which his work should be made effectual unto the salvation of souls. I will get these people. The Father has promised me these people. These people will be mine. If I do these things, this is what the Father has promised to do. And so Pink continues. These were all matters of definite and certain arrangement 
agreed upon between God and His Son in the terms of the everlasting covenant. This eternal covenant of God, announced immediately after the fall, and its existence in eternity, and by virtue of the eternal decree of God, didn't have to temporally evolve into place before becoming real and having salvific effect. Thus, that's why God pronounced to the serpent what was surely to come, namely, as Pink says, his ultimate doom through the work of the mediator and in rudimentary form, it revealed unto sinners the channel through whom alone salvation could flow to them, which is God's covenant with the promised seed, Jesus, between the Father and the Son. And when you understand this eternal covenant between the Father and the Son, as, as Pink has said, certain mysteries and impenetrable confusions, let's say, uh, it quickly go away. How uh, the Father could become Christ's Lord, as in Psalm 16:2, and as we see in verses 9 and 11 of that, of that psalm, and also in Micah 5, 4. We can see how the Son became the Father's servant, which he's described, Jesus is described that way in Isaiah 42. And we can compare it to Philippians 2, 7, taking on the form of a servant. Jesus carrying out the Father's commandment that we see referenced in John 14, 34. It, it helps explain Jesus' declaration, my Father is greater than I, which we find in John 14, 28, which must be speaking in reference to this eternal covenant or Jesus would be himself denying his deity and equality with the Father. If he's taking commands, if the Father is his Lord, and if the Father is greater than him, this helps us understand this economical relationship in time and space between the Father and the Son. Now, with that as background, we can better understand the covenants with Noah and Abraham and his descendants through to the person of King David. And with respect to these other covenants, which um, George Bishop said were subordinate covenants, the continual additions which God subsequently made to the revelation he gave in Genesis 3.15. See, what Pink is saying here, these other covenants are further revelation of the covenant mentioned in Genesis 3.15 where God said, I'm sending a seed with whom I have made essentially a covenant to crush the head of Satan. These, these continual additions, were for a considerable time largely through covenants he made with the fathers covenants which were both the fruit of his eternal plan of mercy and the gradual revealing of the same unto the faithful. In other words, all these covenants were helping give us hooks, uh, giving us things to hang our understanding of the eternal covenant on so that when Jesus became the final word, the final revelation, we said, oh, I get it. I see. 
I see what all of those were pointing. And so Pink continues, only as those two facts are held fast by us, are we in any position to appreciate and perceive the force of those subordinate covenants. Now, that doesn't diminish the importance of those covenants. And certainly God made covenants with Noah and Abraham. But, but with respect to those covenants, Pink asks what I think is a very penetrating question. Were they, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, as fallen creatures able to enter into covenant with their august and holy maker? Were they able to stand for themselves or be sureties for others? The very question answers itself. What, for instance, could Noah possibly do which would ensure that the earth should never again be destroyed by a flood? Those subordinate covenants were the Lord making manifest in an especial and public manner the grand covenant making known something of its glorious contents, confirming their own personal interest in it, our interest in it, our interest in it today, our interest is in the eternal covenant that was worked out between the Father and the Son, and assuring them that Christ, the great covenant head, should be of themselves and spring from their seed. And of course, the seed there that Pink refers to is the promise of the seed in Genesis 3.15. So when people today object about covenant theology, it's because they do exactly what Pink is saying, you're misunderstanding. God didn't enter into a covenant of the same type or nature as he entered into with Adam, who was created upright, who did stand in integrity who if he had continued in his integrity and developed and matured even as Jesus Christ grew in wisdom and stature and favor with the Lord, well, that covenant, yeah, that kind of covenant could make, perhaps be made. Certainly one could be made with Jesus. But because we, we transfer this sense of covenant with you know, Noah and Abraham to the realm of bilateral agreements that we think of between, as I said last week, the, uh, me mowing your yard and you and agreeing to pay for it, we say, well, covenant theology doesn't make any sense because fallen sinful man cannot enter into any bilateral agreement with God. Who do you think man is that he could negotiate agreement with God? And the answer is he can't. That's, a, that's building a straw man and then knocking it down to get rid of a covenant theological understanding of the whole flow of history from cosmology to soteriology to cosmology. So, so we have to appreciate that there are, as the scripture says, two covenants, two covenant heads. Now, even with respect to, let's say, Noah and Abraham, the covenant in that case is unilateral in its making. So there isn't any God's going to no negotiate, okay, uh, will you be my people if I do this? And well, no, I'm not going to be your person unless you agree to do this. It's not that kind of covenant. It is a unilateral covenant. God says, you're going to be my people. Now, why would we get upset 
that that covenant would be unilaterally created by God with us if we understand who God is. I mean, wow! God, the eternal who dwells in eternity, who is infinite in all of his perfection, wants to be in a covenant relationship with me and call me his people? I'll take it! What do I have to do? Believe it? Oh, wow! You're kidding me. Why would we complain about that concept of covenant? Now, it works into a bilateral covenant because God works to shine his light of the knowledge of the glory of God into our hearts such that we then say, I accept. Whoa, this is the pearl of great price. I'm all in. That's what covenant theology is about. And as I said last week, with the advent of Schofield in his Bible, we've broken the concept of history and covenant into lots of little bitty pieces all smashed to smithereens. And with it went any long-term basis for hope apart from escaping earth. Now, I want to wrap up with just a couple of things here. What was to be achieved by this eternal covenant? As I mentioned at the top of the episode, there was a single purpose, a single redemptive purpose. And we read of it in a couple of places. And it should give us great hope. First, let me reference you to Acts Chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. And Peter there says, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. How is that possible? Because now you're at peace with the God who created all things, and this is now your Father's world from beginning to middle to end and that he may send Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind, this is after Jesus has ascended. We get concepts of the Trinity here. He's going to send you Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ, who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things. Not some things. Heaven must receive him until the restoration of all things. So Christ isn't coming back to take people. Now, I guess you could say he's going to suck us, the church, out. But he's going to stay in heaven until the times of the restoration of all things. And Luke continues in the recounting of this sermon, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began because the beginning of the world was also the beginning, you might say, of the eternal covenant and it being worked out in creation. I'm going to create and I'm going to redeem and I'm going to reconcile it all back to myself. We read of it in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 through 26. 
this is such a critical passage, and I don't remember ever reading it growing up. I don't remember a sermon on it anywhere. Maybe I was just in bad evangelical Bible-believing churches. Maybe you've been in all of them. So let me just share it for those who may have my own experience. The Apostle Paul writes here, For since by man came death. Okay, there we're seeing this federal headship concept. Adam was represented to everybody, and he fell, and so the consequence, the effect of sin, had to be death. By man came also the resurrection for the dead. Man there is capitalized. It's referring to Jesus as the God-man. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. See, again, we're speaking to the fact there are two critical people in history, Adam and Christ. But each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. But listen to what it says about his coming. Then comes the end when, he's going to tell us when, this coming is going to be where we'll be joined with him, you could say, in eternity. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. So Jesus is working out this kingdom of his father which is exactly what jesus says to his disciples before his ascension he spoke to them about the kingdom of god for he must reign or is he talking about in heaven because he's not coming right until he delivers the kingdom to the father sucking the church out only makes sense if the whole kingdom is the church he must reign until he, Jesus, has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So when, he's abdued, so when Christ has subdued all power and authority and is ready to then destroy death, that there is no more death, then the Apostle Paul writes in verse 28, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under his feet, that God may be all in all. We see Romans eleven thirty six, echoes of it in that verse. All things are from me. All things are done through me. And all things are directed back to me. And I'm going to bring all things back to me. And I will reign in heaven until the time of the restoration of all things. When it's ready for all things to be restored. When there's been progress made by putting an end to all rule and all authority and all power. And if you want to say, well, that happened on the cross, then we should have already had the second coming. There is a progression toward those things. It is the coming of the kingdom of God. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what God's eschatology is. This, to me, is a hopeful eschatology. It's the eschatology that produced the Western 
legal system, and it's the only eschatology that will allow its ruins to be restored by the people who understand that God is still working out his eternal covenant to restore all things, to reconcile all things back to himself because he cares not just about man but the whole creation and creation is groaning waiting for the sons of God to be revealed when the effects of the curse are released and the creation can move on along with us to that final state of glorification of whom Jesus is our hope of it coming true and, and we have this hope that if we work on these things, there will be progress because God is faithful to himself and because the Father cannot renege on the covenant promise that he made to his Son, who's fulfilling his part of the covenant. He says, it's finished. I did my part. So we can work at restoring the ruins with hope. Will we see that restoration in our lifetime? Personally, I don't expect to see it. But we can lay the foundation for it for the next generation and the generations to come. And that foundation was set forth in our, our series prior to this one that I'm concluding today. And I would encourage you to listen to it if you haven't. And next week, we'll start a new series that builds on this one and the previous one. And it will be appropriately entitled Building Blocks. What are the building blocks? We need to begin laying today for the ruins to be restored and I hope you will join me for that on next week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's FACTennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FACTennessee.